Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. This is going to be the last episode of 2022, and it's still one of my favorite episodes, not only because the topic is one that often isn't talked about much within e-commerce or fintech fraud, and only some banks have departments dedicated to investigating fraud post-transaction or post-account signup. But it's also one of my favorites because both Robert and Eric are legends in my book and also good friends, which I'm lucky for that too. As Robert and I talked a bit in the episode that was recorded before this one, so it was episode 103 on June 13th, 2022, when StubHub was first beginning to become a household name as the main marketplace to buy and sell event tickets online, they recognized that it was critical and imperative for their users to trust the platform. Otherwise, buyers would be too concerned with the risks of buying a ticket from a total stranger. Is it real? Will I get the ticket or will they run away with my money? Is it going to be a fake ticket? All of that. Am I actually going to be able to go see the concert or go to the sporting event? And also the risks of selling tickets to strangers. Will their card be declined? Is it fraud? Is it all those other things. And also prior to being able to buy and sell event tickets online on the secondary market, it was a lot of meeting up with random people in a parking lot or other things like that. They knew that trust was important, but while it was, they were working and gaining trust from legitimate users, especially in the beginning, they were also a big target for online fraud. Fraudsters recognized very quickly that they could possibly sell tickets that were fake and make money or use stolen credit cards to purchase tickets and then resell them quickly before it was found out that it was fraud. So it was not only payment fraud, but other forms of abuse like selling duplicate or fake tickets, buyer and seller collusion for money laundering. Account takeovers became quite big fairly soon, a few years into Subhub's existence. So it was never a dull moment. And as Robert and his really impressive team and he talks about them quite a bit because the ones I know are all really good people and they were just such a good team. While they were quickly building best-in-class front-end defense systems and processes, they also realized that they needed an end-to-end fraud prevention strategy, especially because a large number of their fraud accounts and transactions were being done by the same bad actors over and over again. And that happens everywhere, but Unfortunately, a lot of companies, for lots of reasons that we'll talk about in this episode, you don't invest or can't invest in that end-to-end where you're also doing investigations on fraud attempts and lost fraud to tie them all together to a fraud ring, to a big case and say, we need to work with law enforcement here so that there can be some consequences. Uh, That's something that I'm actually working with the retailers on right now with the master manipulators, as Trishana and I talked about a few weeks ago. And that's going to be a massive one. 
But each individual company should really be doing it too. That's in a perfect world. That is what I would recommend. So Robert hired Eric, a former U.S. Secret Service agent in San Francisco, to build one of the best post-transaction investigations departments or teams I've ever seen. And there really aren't that many, but I got to really be on the sidelines of seeing this be built and seeing the immense benefits and wins and headlines that came out of it that really made a big difference. And even though I knew and worked with both of them at the time when I was working for the trade association, they were doing the work that they talk about in this episode, but they shared even more details and specifics in this conversation than they could tell me when it was happening. So I learned a few things too. And I think one of my favorite parts of this conversation you're about to hear is the story they tell about the sting operation that they ran uh, at the World Series in 2012. They did several of those. I remember them going to the Super Bowl a few times and some crazy stories Robert told me after they got back from one of them, actually two of them, and some other crazy things. In fact, we were actually all in Boston for the last game of the 2013 World Series, and that was crazy. They got to go to the game. I had an early flight the next day, and despite being invited, which is so cool to get to know friends that work for event ticketing companies and other things. But I just, I also couldn't do it because my poor husband was at home taking care of our daughter. And I was like, oh man. And we didn't know if they'd win or not, but if they won, that was going to be the end of the World Series. So it was quite crazy that it was still cool to wake up at two in the morning to people yelling and screaming and honking their horns out my hotel window when the Red Sox won. So back to the sting operation of the World Series in 2012, though. Group or the people that were actually behind the large amounts of fraud and the buyer scams that they had at the time, like the actual bad actors that were behind the scenes and running that scam, as well as how their arrests had an immediate impact on StubHub's pre-transaction fraud queue the next day were definitely two of my biggest takeaways of this conversation. Whether you have always thought about maybe creating an investigation team or even just investigating one or two fraud rings, or just if you want to hear some really cool stories from two badass veteran fraud fighters, you are in for a treat with this conversation. So I also wanted to reshare this episode this week because in the new year, within the next couple of weeks, I'll be talking with two senior leaders of Two of the leading federal law enforcement agencies in the U.S. that are tasked with investigating and referring, investigating financial fraud and cyber crimes and referring them for prosecution. So I think this episode complements that feature episode really well. All right, guys, I'm going to let you listen in on this replay conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. And even more, I hope you have a great new year. This is pretty fun. I ha- it's been a while since I've had two people on the podcast and especially two people that I have known for, I don't know, about half of my career. Robert, welcome back to Fraudology and Eric, welcome to my podcast. I'm so grateful you made time for this last week or the week before's episode. I'm not quite sure when this one's going to come out, either one or two weeks ago. So if you have not listened to that one, I highly recommend it. You'll have a lot more context for Robert's perspective on this call. But Eric, I'm going to pick on you first. Would love to have you share a little bit about your background. You've really interesting one, especially 
uh, within the fraud and trust and safety community. Robert mentioned you a few times when he was talking about some of the successes of the trust and safety team at StubHub. So we definitely wanted to have you on. Can you share a bit about your career path up until StubHub and then what you're doing now? Sure. I guess I got into this world about 2007 when I became a special agent with the Secret Service. I was assigned out to the San Francisco field office and worked as a special agent for about five and a half years. During that time, I did financial crimes as well as electronic crimes and network intrusion investigations. At, towards the, when I was on the electronic crime squad, Robert and one of his investigators came over and pitched a case to us. And I worked that for about two, two and a half years, wrapped that case up. And they got an offer that I just couldn't refuse and joined the StubHub team. Worked there for a little over three years and then did a little contract work for Security Financial. And that lasted about nine months. And when I found my current position, which is a leading an e-crimes team at Yahoo. And so that's where I'm currently at. Just picturing Robert as the godfather kind of made me smile. An offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> there are a few people that can say that <laughs> over the years. I mean, Robert, he couldn't be farther from the godfather or a mobster. That's why it made me laugh. But yeah, well, and I know that Robert considers you one of his best hires and closest friends still to this day. So obviously that was the right move. What can you tell me about what can either both of you tell me about maybe Robert, you first, as far as like the case that you took to the Secret Service where you worked with Eric first, was that like a fraud ring or how much investigation did you do before you brought it over to the Secret Service? Yeah, so we we were just starting to get our feet wet with the prosecutions and we had a couple of the investigators that really had a, a knack for tying data together. They could see patterns, they could see commonalities, they, whether it was the events or the locations or the venues or the method in which they were trying to steal. They were just tying together loose ends and finding really interesting cases. And we started working through any avenue we could to start engaging those law enforcement agencies to push cases. and. We happened to be connected with the Secret Service office there in San Francisco, which is really close to our home office at StubHub back then. I actually don't know where they are anymore. <laughs> I saw they moved out of their headquarters last time I was in San Francisco. No clue. I think a lot of their ops are in Salt Lake now, so I don't know. Oh, we're old as new again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. So anyway, we got hooked up with the Secret Service local field office and Eric and another individual came out to hear the pitching of the case. And apparently the individual that was on the team that was doing the pitching did a great job. And they picked the case up and worked it all the way to the point where doors were knocked in and, and virtual became kinetic. I don't want to steal that part of that. I'd rather have Eric dig into that stuff. But yeah, we, we really were focusing in a very nascent way on prosecutions, on pitching cases, hoping to get some sort of a win. And this was really our first major federal case that turned into a sizable win. Eric, what was it about that case that made you and your team interested in wanting to pursue it or feeling like it was a good one to pursue, to prosecute and kick down doors and all that, as Robert says? The case was definitely of had a high dollar value loss. 
it was also the victim being StubHub, which was a, a large company in our area of investigation or with San Francisco. And the suspect was believed to be within the United States, which also made mm. it easier. We didn't have to have all of those things to be, to take that case at the time. Now we did, depending on where you're taking a case federally, it's all dependent upon the local U.S. attorney's office on what their dollar threshold is mm -hmm. um, for them to prosecute a case. We could investigate it all we want up until the point where you needed legal process approved by the U.S. attorney's office to take that case. And luckily we got that and we ran with it. It actually turned into a pretty complicated case. There was a lot of the main suspect, which was out of Portland, Oregon, was doing a lot of OPSEC that where we couldn't trace anything back to him. But with working with the investigator and Rob at StubHub, we were able to identify an individual out of Illinois and Chicago and that had recently been tied to some tickets and local law enforcement had gone out to interview them. And then I set up a, a meeting with them and we joined their part of the investigation with mine. And then that's how we were able to find and tie it all back to the original suspect or the mastermind behind it out of Portland, Oregon. And then you know, was able to go up there. Term. <laughs> yeah. But we were we were able to go up and execute some search warrants and arrest warrants. And that was it was a pretty good win. What was interesting at the time, even though yeah, you know, Robert laughs about him being a mastermind or lack thereof. <laughs> he was one of the first that was really doing event ticketing fraud at a large scale. And it wasn't just in his own area, but nationwide. And it started, people in the criminal world were starting to take notice of it and how it could be turned into a very profitable crime. And that started bringing in some very large scale organized crime groups from international sectors. That's a really good example of how an organization goes from having no fraud to being overwhelmed with fraud overnight. It can come on like turning a light switch on in a dark room. <laughs> and once they get that that feel for what to do and how to attack you and what they can get from it, they'll, they'll keep doing it until you stop them. Yeah. I mean, and the majority of companies and, and I'm not shaming you. I mean, I understand. And you guys know, too, it, it's not easy to convince an organization that, you know, is often so focused on top line revenue to invest in post-transaction investigations. But when you're just playing whack-a-mole and trying to stop them all the time, that's unsustainable, right? They're just going to key to a point where maybe they go somewhere else, but they're not going to change or stop their attempts. And every attempt costs money. So it, it just, the volume goes up. So a couple of questions. One is what did this type of fraud look like? Because you guys were a marketplace. I mean, I'm pretty sure I know, but is it buying tickets on stolen credit cards and then reselling it? Is it, I mean, I know you guys had every flavor. You had account takeover, you had others, but at this time, the cases that you were investigating, were they primarily triangulation fraud? No, I mean, they were all over the board. They, they were things like buy a stolen credit card, then taking that product and reselling it, sometimes reselling it back onto the same market. 
<laughs> flipping right back on the StubHub and selling it, which allowed you to right. um, see you the know. whole picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, launder. You could launder the funds. Oh, yeah. You, you now I had officially sanctioned money from StubHub for this thing. We were also seeing, I mean, in those days, we were also shipping physical tickets in oh, FedEx. Right. And if the buyer and the seller were both the same person or mm. in on the scheme, you put up a fraudulent listing, you buy it with a fraudulent credit card, you ship a KFC coupon in that envelope to yourself or to a compatriot and you pocket the stolen money. Again, washed right through StubHub. And so there were a lot of ways that criminals can find to use marketplaces to enrich themselves, whether that's through theft of goods or cash out of credit cards or even laundering money. And yeah, so there were a lot of things that were going on during that time. And it got a lot more sophisticated when we saw oh, yeah. ATO come into play, things like yeah. Well, and I mean, just for context, events can get very expensive, right? Especially on the secondary market. So whereas secondary market used to just be kind of localized, you guys really, I mean, the company itself, so obviously you didn't start the company, but but StubHub really democratized that and made it mm -hmm. both accessible and great and wonderful for people to be able to get tickets to things that they wouldn't ever get tickets for before, or also be able to sell their tickets if something happened or they're not able to go or they bought the tickets for the face value and then they realize they can sell them on the marketplace for three times, four times, 10 times as much. And all of a sudden you don't want to go to the concert as much. But, One of the reasons that existed, yeah. right, is because there was an inherent risk in handing cash over on the street corner for a ticket. Right. Was it a counterfeit? Mm. Did they make multiple copies? Like there are a lot of things you, you weren't really sure about when you handed that cash over. And so one of the things that they brought to the table one of the things that enticed buyers to the marketplace was the guarantee. And, I was going to mention and that, that. Yeah. And, and that's what ends up leading to the massive losses for the marketplace. And, mm -hmm. and as Eric was saying on this one case, that in, in that case, StubHub was the one that had taken the loss because they had reimbursed all the parties. Mm -hmm. the, the, anyone who had been defrauded, anyone whose information was taken or used or the credit card was was used to, to for a transaction, that those monies were returned to that user. So the ultimate person holding the loss was the marketplace themselves because of their central role in handing cash out and guaranteeing the transactions. At the end of the day, they're guaranteeing those transactions out of their own pocket. Yeah. And it was really your job to try to minimize that risk as much as possible in multiple yeah. fronts. <laughs> you know, yeah. from Without impeding transactions. <laughs> Don't stop the transactions, but stop the bad ones. Always, that one. It's always like a tightrope on one leg. <laughs> like it is, but... Yeah, everyone who's listening to this can very much understand, like relate and commiserate to that for sure. <laughs> yeah. So Eric, you obviously probably had to learn a lot about event ticketing and a secondary market while you were working on this case for two and a half years. And then once you were given that amazing offer to go build what I still think is one of the top probably three or four investigative departments of any commerce and marketplace that I know of. I mean, I know of the big guys, but you guys had some huge wins. And I know a big part of that is because you came from the Secret Service side. You understood what it took to build a case. You understood what you needed to do and help. And you trained up investigators that are just absolutely amazing to this day. What was kind of that like for you kind of transitioning from, and I know I didn't write this question down. I apologize, but I'm just curious, like the transition from federal law enforcement to technology, was that an easy transition or a hard one, or you were happy to never wear a suit again? 
I did burn a lot of suits. I bet. Um, I kept maybe one or two for whenever I had to go into and do presentations or uh, referrals. But the transition was incredibly easy, especially going to StubHub and having the support of Rob and the rest of the legal team and the company. Because basically when I came on board, Rob's number one goal for me was build out a team as if you were building it out with the Secret Service for an investigation and then do everything you can to investigate. And it was very easy with StubHub being the victim, presenting cases and going to law enforcement and asking them to take on a case. They didn't have to reach out to multiple or hundreds or thousands of victims involved in the case. We were the victim. We had taken the loss. We're the ones who were seeking justice. Uh, I no longer had to worry about physical danger when kicking in a the door. There weren't any more necessarily long hours or late nights doing that stuff with law enforcement. It was a great transition, very smooth. It was great. First started at SubHub. It, it certainly seemed like it was an easy transition for you and, and like you were bored to do that. I just remembered kind of going back to the first story. Robert, is the that first case up in Portland, is that the one with the party boat and all of the things that they confiscated? <laughs> yeah. <Seized. laughs> See, this is... Yes. I'm not yes, a former Secret Service it. agent. That's why I'm not using the we right word. Seize a party boat. I think it was about a 30-foot boat with a custom sound system, like $10,000 sound system in it. And I can't, can't confirm or deny there might have been a pole in the, the lounge area of the boat as well. I forgot all about um, For entertainment purposes. Yeah, for, or professional. I don't know which, but right, yes. Right. Uh, so yeah, we seized that and it went down for auction down in California, Southern California somewhere. And I believe it went for only about $1,600. And it was about a $30,000, $40,000 boat. Jeez, I need to start attending federal auctions. What am I, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I sat in a warehouse for wow. about a good year and a half, two years. And I kept trying and went out because I was at StubHub at that yeah. point. And it went up for auction, auction. I was like, kept trying to get Robert to say, Let's ask for it back as part of our expenses and right. our loss. And he was like, no, I don't. Man, we could have it right outside AT&T Park for the Giants games and all that Legal stuff. would never sign Stubhub off on that. And, and StubHub listed on it. That's hilarious. Well, does that mean that only $1,600 went back to StubHub then for from that specific thing then? Is that how that works or is it a little different? Or was there, it, I mean, every case is different, I guess, but. Yeah, every, it, Every case is different. And once the case is adjudicated and damages are awarded, if there's money that you've been able to seize, that'll get returned and it'll be broken up between all the different victims for StubHub. It was just one. So it went back to StubHub. I know that we seized a bunch of high-end televisions and stuff like that. And StubHub at the time didn't want those. So they gave them to like local police departments and that had worked the case and stuff like that. So they didn't have to take those, that dollar loss off mm. of, or that dollar amount for those TVs off of what was awarded to them. Now, the hard part is if the subject or suspect doesn't have, or the defendant at that point doesn't have the, the funds to pay back what they've stolen, 
Right. It's up to the companies. It's up to law enforcement to constantly be checking in on all of their accounts to say, okay, hey, suddenly $10,000 popped up. We're going to go back and seize that because that person still owes victim $100,000 or whatever. So it's kind of hard. You don't set up these investigations teams to necessarily try to recoup your costs. Right. If it happens, it's icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. You set up these investigations teams to pitch these cases to stop playing whack-a-mole, to take a piece off the board. And hopefully you can do that enough times that you make a, a seismic impact to your, your fraud loss or the fraud attempts on your platform. As you mentioned earlier, I mean, if you can give them enough friction points, maybe they'll move on elsewhere. And, right. And StubHub it's was able common, to do but, that. Right. Yeah. But the problem is, is that at some point your competitor or your other companies within your realm will set up the same type of friction points and the mole will come back and hit you at some point. Right. They'll find Again. a new way to hit you. Right. Yeah. Because it's, it just becomes a round robin. Yeah. Right. Right. Which was why it was so important for you to work with the other ticketing companies that were as big, if not a little bit bigger than you at the time in both prevention as well as the investigations part, right? Yeah, definitely in the prevention. But even when Robert set up this team and everything, we were the only ones really doing this at any level within the ticketing companies. Do you think that's because you had that guarantee on the secondary market or it was just business decisions on the other parts? The team that we built was like one of three or four of the best that you've ever seen. It was that the company fully supported that vision. We weren't bringing, we didn't have an ROI. Mm -hmm. I always like to refer it as we had a quarter of the pie that we had control of. And law enforcement had another part and prosecution, the attorney's office, prosecutor's office had another portion of that pie. And then courts, judges mm-hmm. and the defense attorneys had their their input into it as well. So you never had complete control of what the outcome was going to be. A lot of companies don't like to give up that much uncertainty or lack of control. They want have they want to have a more known outcome that's going to happen and they can judge the risk and the reward from. Luckily we were we were fully supported and we made quite the impact. Yeah that was you a did. heck of a battle. <laughs> to keep those well, that funding. <laughs> so that's what I was going to ask you, Robert, was you were the one that went to battle for that funding. I know some of it was just the fact that they understood they needed to throw some money at this problem. And you had the vision of we need to do this end to end, right? We need to send a message to these guys that are just hitting us so hard and making so much money and telling their friends. And so it's growing very fast, like you mentioned. What were some of the points that you made to have that start and and fund the team? And then what were some of the payout, like some of the things that maybe you didn't expect, but it had added like paid in dividends? Yeah, I mean, so we covered a little bit on the the last podcast we did together. But as we talk about things like, how do you get started? For building that team, getting started was pitching that case to the Secret Service, having them pick it up. And at the end of it, seeing a prosecution, Hmm. seeing search warrants, seeing asset seizures, right? It wasn't theory anymore. It was real. And so what allowed me to get funding for this wild harebrained scheme that I had, because <laughs> that's all it was, right, was that I was able to divert one individual who really, really liked 
digging in and pulling strings together and putting together cases, diverting them from what they were doing as a fraud analyst and having them work solely where, where, where possible on putting cases together and talking to those uh, subpoena requests and things like that. And so we didn't really need funding at that point. Those were resources right. in my purview. It was, it was a Friday. It was a really brilliant fraud analyst who <laughs> well beyond his years <laughs> and experience. So yeah, we, we got started from the ground up and having that went under our belt, having that case that Eric was part of the investigation and the prosecution that led to funding. I mm. can point to something. This isn't theoretical anymore because yeah. I've been talking about it the whole time, right? Why is this person working on this person? Right. I got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and we can point to a win. And what I hope we did, and you talk about that being one of the top four teams. At least, I mean, probably three, honestly. I can only think of two others off the top of my head that I think are as good as what We'll say, we'll say we're in the top 10 and then we have to think too hard about it. So we were like number one, but we're in the top 10 anyway. They, the oh. other companies I'm thinking of have significantly larger budgets than you guys yeah, of course. ever did. So yeah, totally, it's totally. You are small, but very mighty. <laughs> they were also dealing with intellectual property theft and other sort of things. That is and true. Yes. So they had a different economic value associated with information true. theft. So anyway, in being public about it, in speaking at conferences about it, at having public relations and actually speaking to the media about it. Getting headlines. Um, yeah. We were also, a little piece of me was hopeful that others could use that success, that momentum to build their own teams and to, to do their own their own work. Some have. It's been a few years. The interesting piece is we've all moved on with our careers from that organization. The last major win was, in, oh gosh, keep me correct here, 2016, 2014 2015. 2015. I think it's 15. Somewhere 15. In there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was the last major case. 2015. You're right. Yeah. Yep. That was, I was remembering where I was in life when Robert called me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we all moved on to other organizations and did other things. I, I'm a startup guy. I moved on to a new startup. Eric moved on to other things as well. In doing so, that team sort of dissolved. So there's, there was a change of, of management at the organization we were working at. We all decided to sort of move on with our lives. And that lack of con- continuity and that lack of continuity and senior executive management really didn't support doing what we were doing anymore. The business had changed as well. I mean, the, the business had rapidly changed and um, some of the economics just didn't support some of the expenditures anymore. But I really do hope that people are, are still able to use some of those wins because everything we did then is still valid. Everything we succeeded in showing will still work in the market for organizations that want to actually do something about this cost on the bottom line. If they want to divert away from these losses, they're going to have to do something serious about the people that are causing them, not just sort of playing whack-a-mole or ignoring it or turning into a cost of doing business, which it is not. This is an avoidable cost of doing business. That's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted you on the podcast. Eric has been such a good sport because when even when I was in charge of conference content for Card Not Present, he came out just for that to do a presentation for an hour. It was so good. And I thought, okay, maybe hopefully some companies will go and do And I know some of them did pick up things and it really was helpful, but I've been discouraged as well. But I understand that it's a tough sell sometimes, but I do think, especially for companies that are just getting hammered. And if you've got an analyst that's able to look and tie them all together and say, look, this is all the same group. These are all the same guys. The No matter what defenses we put in place, they're going to find loopholes. See, like we put this one in place, they went up, et cetera. Like maybe saying, can we try this as something to stop it? And you guys are proof that you can real life. It's not just theory, right? That in real life, you can go from the spreadsheet of 
all these connections and, and all of this to handing it off to law enforcement, law enforcement doing the investigation, handing it off to the USDA. This is obviously U.S. specific, but then USDA taking it to court. I was involved in one of those cases, not with you guys, but a different a different situation. And I know it's not easy. And especially back then we were all, I don't know, Eric probably didn't have the same experience, but I felt like I had to explain what internet fraud and, and electronic crimes were to half of the law enforcement that I interacted with. But I've tried to be like, I think this is something that companies should still think of. I, I hear too many people say, oh, it just can't be done. And I feel the same way about chargebacks too, in some ways where people are like, yeah, we don't even bother. And I'm like, yeah, but if you knew what I did, it's so frustrating sometimes because no, it is possible. So I want to ask Eric one more like structural question and then I would love some stories. You put a lot of work into building the team. You mentioned that Robert really gave you full autonomy and building it up almost as if it were a Secret Service field office in a way. And you did a lot of networking as well with federal law enforcement all over the U.S. You guys were traveling a lot, in some cases internationally. What were some of the key milestones you worked towards and then like, do you think that the in-person networking that you did with the electronic type crime task force and others in major cities is necessary for every e-commerce and marketplace to do if they want to do this? Or how would you suggest any other team going about building those relationships? There's a lot to pull out of that one. No <laughs> worries. You definitely have to network because it's a sales job almost. And I never realized it like that. But I was also one of the benefit of having been an agent with the Secret Service versus like the FBI or DEA or ATF or something like that is the Secret Service doesn't have a, I mean, they might have 3,000 special agents total where the mm. FBI will have 20,000. So when they run a case or do something, they have all the resources to do it themselves. I didn't as a special agent with the Secret Service. So I had to network and work with locals and state contacts to do a lot of our stuff. So that gave me a good basis or groundwork. When I don't have complete all the resources in my control, I've got to, I've got to network and I have to pitch things. So when you're coming from the private sector, you got to be able to do that because you're asking whether it's a detective out of NYPD or an investigator from the NCA in the UK or some local inspector or police officer from Timbuktu, Texas, you're, you need to have a relationship to where at the end of the day when they put in a 60-hour day, that they'll see that you left them a message or their your case is on their desk and they'll spend an extra 15 minutes at, at the end of the day to forward that case in some mm. way or form or fashion. And if you're not as to the case, then how can you expect them to be when they've got a heavy caseload? They've got other obligations, whether that's range qualifications or for us, it was protection or going to conferences themselves and still handling a caseload or going to court for whatever to take out to that extra time. And we're not even talking about work-life balance. If they just see that you've turned over a case and then you're not doing anything more about it, it's like, can you expect them to do the same thing? I mean, hopefully mm. they do, but we're all human too. Yes, I was lucky enough and made it known to Robert that 
I needed the travel. I needed to make some inroads into some of the areas where we had established that were we were taking major losses, whether that was Chicago and New York and London, Miami, Vegas, Mm. where there was lots of high dollar loss happening in those places. And I, I had that support when we were also looking to expand into the European Union. I was able to go out there for about two weeks to meet with secret service offices out there, but also their contacts. Mm. With whether it was with the German BKA or NCA in the UK or a couple of different groups in France, the Hague for the European or um, Europol, Interpol, those types of things. But I was laying the groundwork so that they could put a face to StubHub and if and when we pitched cases to them, which the contacts that we made with City of London Police and the NCA were instrumental in our big takedown of the Russian group. So I think it doesn't hurt to do it. And the cost of doing that travel was minuscule compared to the fraud we were losing. Mm. So one quick question. When you say that you had areas of high losses, that was where the events were, right? Not necessarily where the bad actors were or where the cardholders are. It was, you know, so like Vegas, I'm sure were popular because they'd be resold. Right. And for event ticketing, where we were, it's a little bit different than just a normal e-commerce company. We had, whether it was the United Center or Madison Square Garden or a huge title fight or the Masters or a Super Bowl, there was a high likelihood the fraudsters would actually be there, whether to enjoy the, the big ticket event and we might be able to round them up. And going further in regards to that stuff, We spearheaded a task force with the Secret Service Office in San Francisco and AT&T Park and the San Francisco Giants when they hosted games four, five, and six of the World Series. What was, we couldn't get SFPD on board because these are a dime a dozen. There's no connection. If you step on one, a bunch of other cockroaches are going to just scatter. And there's no real. It is. Yeah, it it was sadly it was. But that was their experience because they never really looked into it really in depth. What we were lucky enough to do was we had agents on site that could make arrests immediately if they needed to. Working with T&T Park and the Giants, they were any ticket that came in that they scanned that was fraud. They said, hey, we'll try to help you out with this, but we've also got industry experts here and law enforcement that'll interview you. Would you be willing to be interviewed? Hmm. And so we would actually, we got all the fraudulent tickets and had interviews and made the victim feel not completely demoralized and at loss because hmm. they're being heard. And AT&T Park and the Giants really did a fantastic job taking hmm. care of them for a World Series. But what we were, when we got the 80 or so fraudulent tickets at the end of the day, on that first day, game four, when we started analyzing them, the fraudsters were recycling the SKU numbers. And we, we identified that there was only like eight different SKU numbers being used out of all the ones that were coming up. And as we dug more and more into it and had the victim statements that four hours from game time, these guys were meeting people like down by the airport, which mm. was about 45 minutes away. And then as it got closer and closer, 
they were working our way closer to the, the venue. And at the end of the three days, we saw a drop off on at game three, four, and five. Games five, there was a drop off in the rejections, but it was because the fraudsters had already moved to KC or for the game six. And that entire fraud was orchestrated by two street gangs out of Chicago. And wow. We ended up finding out that one of the guys had gotten arrested up in Minneapolis and at an event. And he was, he was a guy in his fifties and the gangs would send him with money and he would travel the summer to (laughs) these venues and they would send him tickets and he would sell them. And then he had bounced to the next place and the next place. And all that money was coming back to two very violent gangs, one on the South side and one on the West side of Chicago. So you also got the aspect of that this, it's a fraud or fraudulent crime, which a lot of people will sometimes say is victimless you know, because it's, it's a part of doing business. But when you see the, the dad and the six-year-old son who just spent a couple thousand dollars to attend a World Series game, a once in a lifetime event, there's a victim there. But then all the funds that were raised just on that one night or all summer long are going back to much more crimes, whether that's drugs, guns, human trafficking, all the things that the gang's do, then it was like we were able to shed that light and intelligence to law enforcement of, hey, you need to be devoting some resources into this yeah, because this is funding their violent crimes. I was actually going to ask you that. That was something I wrote down as you were talking earlier was when you would catch these bad actors, were all they doing was credit card fraud on event tickets? Were they impacting other merchants online or were they funding much worse things? Like I had Ian, I was just telling you about Ian Mitchell, who founded The Noble before we recorded. And he definitely talked about how he sees a huge correlation between whether it's street gangs and, and financial fraud or human trafficking and financial fraud. Is that also, that's also what you saw. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. 
Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Yep. And because of the connections we made with Chicago PD and the Secret Service office out there and the United Center, because we were working with the venues to make an impact on this because we needed their help as well. Right. And some venues saw us as the outsider because we were secondary ticket marketplace. Right. But when we made those inroads, a lot of the things that we could do were incredible because we all we could start seeing different aspects of the crime and how it affected everything where it's not an isolated event or a crime. What we found with the Chicago PD intelligence and what we were seeing there on our own end was that the gangster disciples and forget the other gang that was affiliated out there that was doing this as well, that these guys would fight or street corner real estate, shoot, drive-bys, the whole thing between the two of them. But then they were also pooling their resources to do mortgage fraud and business email compromises and ATOs and event ticketing fraud and all these other things because they were a diversified company, basically, that how they were approaching it. So they fought each other on the streams. Oh, yeah, right. Multiple revenue streams. So they were fighting each other in the street corner, but then the business arm of those two street games were actually working together in these crimes. Wow, I actually didn't know that. I mean, there was a lot of things you guys couldn't say during that time that you can say now. So I'm learning a few things too. That was one thing I was going to ask you is I know you, yeah, you did some really great cutting edge things that make sense only for StubHub, but that doesn't mean that other companies can't do these types of things for what makes sense for their company. Didn't you do a Super Bowl sting as well? Or was that just the World Series? I thought thought there were some stories I heard about that. Yeah, we went out to, it was when the Super Bowl was in New York. And with the big time events like that, whether it was a prize fight or like the what we tried to do at the World Series, but we didn't get any arrests. Our trust and safety team identified several tickets that had been purchased with stolen credit cards. And for the Super Bowl, how StubHub would do it was you actually had to come in to our area to pick up those tickets because the sellers had to bring in the tickets before they could list them on our site so that we could verify that they were actually true, authentic Super Bowl tickets. Once we were able to do that, they put on the site for sale. And so then whoever bought it would have to come in. And we worked with the Homeland Security investigations on that one and local PD and ended up arresting, I think, four people at that one. And it was a, it wasn't a big arrest on the grand scale of things, but it was for individuals that were doing lots of different fraud, whether that was check fraud or credit card fraud. And so they didn't get to enjoy the Super Bowl and we got some good stories. And a picture or two, maybe. That was such a wild day. <laughs> it really was. I it think started guys... off with Eric. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, please. It, it started off with Eric and I taking a bus across into New York and walking into a broker's office and filling up our backpacks, Jansport backpacks with, I don't remember, was it five figures or six figures worth of Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl tickets <laughs> each? <Yeah. laughs> and walking, <laughs> walking back through downtown. It was, was 750000 each. 
Yeah. So we one and a half million dollars worth of Super Bowl tickets in our backpacks, walking through downtown Manhattan, getting on a transit bus, taking it over to New Jersey where they had the event. You couldn't have taken an Uber like they were around then. I don't think I really knew what Uber was back then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, my I gosh. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember like there. I think you guys were both like high on adrenaline for a couple of days after that Super Bowl trip. Yeah. And one of the things was I didn't really hand out tickets unless it was one of these cases, one of these situations that we'd already planned with the local officers, the local agents that were on site, they were all in plain clothes. They were wearing jerseys of the teams that were playing. And, you know, they, you couldn't have picked them out if you, you tried. And we had worked out this thing early on that if I came out with tickets and I handed tickets to somebody, they needed to grab that person. And that happened a couple of times where it was identified fraudulent transaction. And we knew that there was no legitimate users coming to pick these tickets up. And so we handed over or I handed over an envelope. And as I started walking with the envelope in my hand, you could see these people making their way through the crowd until they were right next to the individual. So <laughs> they handed that ticket over. It was like they came up off the ground. And they were carried out of the building. And yeah, a few of those folks went out in handcuffs to unmarked police cars in the, in the parking lot. They were driven off. And yeah, it was, that was a wild time. <laughs> it really was. I mean, we talked about this on the last episode, Robert, but like as fraud fighters, we often don't get that, like just that ending, right. Of like, ah, uh, like finally we stopped, like they had a consequence rather than just an inconvenience of having an order canceled. Like they're now in jail or they're now getting their party boat seized or they're now, and I think for all of us, we have such a strong sense of justice that sometimes it can be really frustrating and kind of like demoralizing in a way when we don't feel like justice is always carried all the way out. And so I know that that was a very good feeling to whether you watched it up close, like at the Super yeah. Bowl, or if yeah. you heard about the doors being kicked in at three in the morning or whatever it was, that had to be a really good feeling of accomplishment for sure. It was great to see, get the call that this is a fraudulent order. Mm -hmm. and watch the person be picked up by law enforcement right there. How rewarding. And it was great. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> and that was that was the power of Eric and his team mm -hmm. going out and making contacts and networking with those law enforcement agencies where we had these high value events and setting the ground early, right? It wasn't just that we had shown up in, in New Jersey and pop, popped up a tent, started hanging out tickets and expected help. That conversation started, I mean, Eric, I remember you probably dig in too, but that conversation started way in advance to have all those people be available. And in the coordination with the on-site services folks from the company, like there was a lot of work and a lot of groundwork that went into making that happen. It didn't just happen on its own. I remember what that was probably six months out, eight months out when we started laying the groundwork because even even law enforcement was already starting to engage with all the different aspects that were going to be needed to keep the Super Bowl safe and the participants safe. So, yeah, but that was one of those things where we started looking at the intelligence that we were getting or could see. And, okay, we identify areas that were hot spots and starting to put time in those areas of, hey, yeah, okay, a $1,500 flight, maybe $500 in a hotel stay and some per diem, but look at the dividends it would pay months or even years later. Yeah. And one of the things that we also did is we tried to coordinate a lot of those meetings around things we were already doing. If we were going somewhere for training, who's in that town? Do we need to talk to somebody? If we were going to a conference or we were going to, to deal with one case already, can we pop to another place, right? Okay. We're going to Manhattan, New Jersey, Connecticut. 
Like <laughs> they're drivable. Boston, you know. You, uh, speaking of Boston, actually, I was going to mention the 2014 World Series. We were all there for the MRC conference that year in the fall. Yeah, and yeah. Still one of my one of my regrets is being so tired that I couldn't attend that game with you guys after the conference. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and it ended up being the final game of the series. And I still, but I also felt guilty because my husband had left early to go take care of our daughter. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to feel like such a jerk if I'm like, I went to the world series, but you know, there, you guys went with you know, other ticketing companies and there were some of that kind of thing. But yeah, whenever we would be at a conference for MRC or CNP or whatever, I remember you guys would make, you would definitely make those trips worthwhile. And right. especially with a name like StubHub, and I know there's a lot of people listening that have similar big brand names behind them, they'll take your meeting, right? And that's a really good way to network and all that because at the end of the day, Eric said it earlier, everyone's still people. It's still important, even though we have all this technology, it's still important to build those relationships and have that rapport. And then that kind of can lead to other things. So before we end, we have to end with the best story. And Eric kind of referenced it and a couple minutes ago, but, and Robert had mentioned it too, the biggest case you guys had, I know it was, it culminated for some time, but Eric, this is, this is your time to like reminisce over the good old days. And I know everyone will really enjoy this and I only know bits and pieces. So, and what I read in the newspaper, but you know, that's definitely not all of it. (laughs) No, definitely wasn't all of it. So I mean, this was a culmination of a lot. I mean, so many different moving parts. Some of it it initially was engineering. Resources were devoted by the company to starting and recording all the PDFs. That's where we could see, like Robert had mentioned earlier, that the fraudsters would steal the tickets from us and then re-upload them onto the site. And the way it worked, and Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, but when they re-upload it, it would get a new barcode. And that way, the original seller couldn't use that ticket again. It got sort of got canceled out. Well, at the time, we didn't have a good system for being able to connect the two. And so resources were developed to help stop that type of fraud to where we could start seeing those connections between the two tickets, the ones that were stolen and then the ones that were being listed on our site. So we had that information and we started looking at, okay, who are most egregious resellers that were selling high volumes of stolen tickets, especially from us. And we identified five individuals out of the New York, New Jersey area, four males. And I believe we were able to identify that all four of them, um, they were all in their 20s and 30s. And they had gone to high school together, I believe. And then one individual was the fiance for one of the, the subjects. And we were tracking them and seeing all the things that they were doing. And where we were thinking was that they were the masterminds behind all the fraud that was happening. And then come to find out they were actually, and it goes back all the way back to Brandon from Portland. When he was doing it, everybody was like starting to pick up, okay, wait, there's a lot of areas for fraud here. And it got international attention. With all the friction points that StubHub and the industry were putting into place to slow down this type of fraud, it was requiring more and more technical expertise to commit the fraud. So 
like Brandon would put together lists of, I need 20 tickets for game A and 30 tickets for game B. And he knew the eventing or the sports and the concert and the event world here, what would be high value events to go to and not. And so then he would send those requests to contacts in the criminal world in Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia. And they would circumvent all the friction points to get the tickets and then send them to them. So they were like middlemen. By the time we started identifying this group in New York, in New Jersey, the tables were turned. They were the middle people and Russian organized crime was setting it all up and, and directing it all. We had identified these four or five individuals, the fiance apparently had no, no idea that her fiance had set up an account on StubHub in her name and he had funneled some of the stolen tickets through her account for resale. But when it all went down and they executed arrest warrants and search warrants in New Jersey, New York, London, and they made an Interpol arrest in Spain, I believe, on one of the Russian figures. We got there was one in we, Toronto, in USA Toronto. today. Yes. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's been a little while. It's been a while. You got to dust off those cobwebs and you're working on you yes. know big things now too. So <laughs> so so we got two international arrests. We arrested the four males. We worked so closely with law enforcement through this entire process. It's a we win, on my opinion. So that's why I keep saying we made the arrest. I wasn't there kicking indoors or anything like that. When we arrested the two Russians and the four individuals in New York, New Jersey, within the week, and if, Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, the StubWeb saw almost an immediate 90% drop in attempted fraud on the site. It might Realized be 80 or 90%. 50%. Yeah, I realized fraud, actual fraud they got through dropped 50%. And but yeah, the attempts fell off a cliff. Attempts were like 90%. Almost, wow. Was that because of the headlines or was that because this one group was the ones doing most well, of the fraud or both? <laughs> because of the Russian organized groups. They had taken over so much of it at wow. that time. And those numbers stayed depressed, I would say, almost nine months yeah. before it started climbing back up. And by the time I left that following summer, I don't think the numbers had even gotten close to where they had in dollar loss for StubHub. But it was because we had put together, I think that investigation lasted a year, year and a half. When we put that, we started tracking it and putting it together and pulling in all the pieces and working with our partners at PayPal and stuff like that. What were some of the, I mean, you really did a good job of like explaining that. So basically, the just to kind of recap, just so I understand it, the Russian organized crime syndicate were the ones who were actually, were they laundering money or were they like, were they so, the buyer and the seller or were they using the stolen cards, giving so the tickets were, to the people in New York, New Jersey to resell? So they were using their technical expertise mm. and all the hackers and the computer systems that they had that the average criminal doesn't have access to, at least back then, that was 2014, 20, yeah, 2013, 2014. So they were organizing the initial using stolen credit cards to buy legitimate tickets with stolen funds, 
get in mass quantities. So they were getting around limitations of, okay, hey, you need an IP address in the area from that credit card. All the different checks and balances that you set up for a fraud store, they were able to circumvent those in mass and quantity and timeliness to get it to them. Then they were sending those tickets out to different sellers or middlemen of theirs to post them to sell, which this group ended up being a sizable or running a sizable chunk of their money and or their tickets through. And then when they received the money back for that, that middleman sold the ticket, they got the funds and then they would ship that money back to, they would take 20% and 80% would go back to Russia. So they monopolized the entire process on how to, how to do all that. Well, and the Russians, it sounds like they, and I mean, we know this too, they have the technology and the resources and, and the people and the manpower to be able to really scale up huge amounts of fraud, like mass quantities and being able to mask their devices and their IPs. So it's the difference between, I mean, it's really interesting how the first case was a guy in Portland, you know, that he did a sizable amount and he made a lot of money, but it was not, not the guy in his basement, but you know, it was like one one man show or he had maybe a few friends. And then in the middle there you had, and I know where there are so many other stories, but these are kind of the highlights that we can fit into a podcast episode. In the middle there, you've got street gangs that are funding their violence through fencing tickets. And then at the end, it escalated all the way up to Russian organized crime where it's so huge. It's an interesting trajectory as well as the type of fraud continues. And you guys put in, I mean, Robert and his trust and safety team and Ryan put in so many really great defenses, like you mentioned, Eric, like in the fraud process. So they were able to stop a lot of fraud, but the fraud that was able to get through had to be more sophisticated. It had to have the manpower of Russian organized crime. Yeah, it, yeah. There, there was a need for technical skill to bypass the protections. But yeah, well, and the scary thing is, is that it wasn't as readily available back then as mm-hmm. it is now, but fraud for service on the dark web is if you need to get a bot to spam 200, 300, 400 million emails, I mean, you can buy that just as if you could buy a stolen credit card. Yeah. And that wasn't as prevalent back then. And so back then it was, you had a huge organized criminal syndicate doing all of that. Now you can just and pay some guy on Telegram. You don't even have to go to the dark web. It's, yeah, it's it's really crazy. I mean, just how much we've seen fraud change on the prevention side, as well as obviously on the technical and the, just the methods and, and the knowledge and experience of fraudsters on that other side. And yeah, fraud as a service has democratized committing fraud and made it so much easier for the average person. It's something I... Talk about often on the podcast and probably will continue to because it is a massive issue. There's one thing that I'd like to point out. Yeah, please. We've we've mentioned and you've mentioned it and I've mentioned it like with the gangs up in Chicago, the real world impact from the fraud. I'm hoping that maybe this podcast will open some eyes and from a lot of these companies out here who are wanting to make an impact in the world versus just making money that, you know, that investing in this does stop a lot of real world 
bad things. Wish I could be more eloquent than that, but you have so many Fortune 500 companies that are wanting to put out a good impression or to be impactful on society and doing X, Y, and Z and being seen as a good corporate partner for the human race. This is one of those things that you're helping your bottom line, but you're also making an impact of helping the judicial system identify and take down bad actors, which then can impact whether that's human trafficking or violence and drugs and terrorism, the whole bit on an international scale. And it's not just theory. You have seen those correlations. Yes. Many times. I I see it even more so now in my current role at Yahoo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that, Eric. I I mean, I feel like that that's a really good point. It's not just about saving your bottom line and getting those headlines to deter fraud. It's it's an opportunity to do good in the world far beyond the business aspect of your company. I mean, maybe we're just being too altruistic here, but I mean, I think that that's something that you're right, that a lot of them talk the talk. Do they walk the walk? And I I would love to see more of these teams popping up. I would I would love to see you advising them or bringing them in or whatever it is, because I think you really created a template for something that was able to do a lot of good. And it also really helped with team morale, as well as it gave some of your executives some talking points to investors and others of like, if they had to explain away some losses for fraud, we just caught this organized crime here. We did this or that. Like it gives them the ability to go to their your their own horns up to the board and investors. Et Stockholders. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. Shareholders and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So And there, it's not just about like doing good. I'm really glad you said that. As we're wrapping up, because clearly we could talk for so much longer. And I think listeners now understand why you two are just some of my favorites. And I just, and why I use you as an example all the time when companies say, does anyone ever work with law enforcement? Or we thought about that, but we... It didn't really work. Well, you didn't do it the Robert and Eric way. They made it work. And it wouldn't just work for a company like Step Up. It would work for any kind of company. You just adapt your methods and tactics to what the product was, what the customer behavior is, and all of that. So you guys literally built a best-in-class post-transaction investigations department from nothing. And it had so many successes. It was so exciting to see those final big headlines. It was a really good way to go out for full video and your time there. But when you look back on your time at Subhub, there's a lot of things that I'm proud of as, as your friend of you, but I would love to know what you guys are proud of each. And I'll start with Robert first. I am proud of every last person that I hired into that team. There's not a single person. In fact, there were people that were there before I got there and I'm proud of all of them as well because they've taken their time there and they've continued growing their careers and they're all fantastic, productive people in this industry. And we've talked a couple of times, now we've had Eric on, but we talk about Ryan and a lot of people know Ryan, but there were 72 people on that team. Right. Globally. On the full trust and safety team, not just the investigations team. Correct. Yeah. The the entire global team doing payments and and trust safety and policy and dealing with marketplace safety issues, like just all those sort of things. All over the world, there were 72 people, very little turnover. 
Mm-hmm. Very little, let me, let me rephrase that. Very little regrettable turnover. There were sometimes within that team, there were parts of the team that were displaced due to economic factors like we see today, but everybody landed on their feet in new places and they all progressed in their career. And I am absolutely proud of every last person that was, that ever graced time on the trust and safety team at StubUp. Just amazing, amazing folks. We pushed the envelope, great technology decisions back then, building risk products, tools, all those sort of things, policies, best practices. We, we really pushed the envelope. And, and I think that I'm really proud of the work that we did and, and the results that we got. Now that we're talking about this, I would totally go back to that prosecutions piece again. I would totally revisit that <laughs> if somebody wanted to build that. I bet I, I can entice Sarah for round two. But yeah, it's... it's, it's Nostalgia, I will do that. It's good work. But you, you know, guys learned so much. And I feel like that's yeah. why I wanted you on because I don't want that, those lessons to just like stay with you. I think there's, I mean, literally we could make this a three hour podcast and it would still be very <laughs> interesting because we've only talked about a few cases. But I mean, yeah, it was a really good time. Yeah. You guys yeah. did so much. And to your point, the trust and safety team lived on after you. In so many organizations. Yes. And yeah, I mean, yeah then they then they've scattered out throughout. I mean, I yeah, still keep in touch with a few of them and whether mm-hmm. they're still there or I have recently left. And they're all just great people. You really did a great job of hiring and training both of you for sure. Yeah. 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 I just, if there are questions or anything, if anybody's listened to these two, two podcasts and they've got questions, things, drop me a line on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to answer questions or point people in directions or even make introductions. I've known a lot of people through these years and I'm happy to, to keep those connections growing. Definitely. That's going to be hard to follow, but what are you proud of at your time of when, from your time at Subhub? Uh, the people I got to work with, definitely the experience that I gained and the sense of accomplishment. Robert and legal team and the leadership from StubHub really trusted me to do something they had no idea about. And having that type of backing and faith in you, you don't find that all the time. And so that was really personally and professionally very impactful to me. The other part that I'm really thankful for is that when I joined the Secret Service, I wanted to make a difference. I was willing to make sacrifices, put my life on the line, do things for a greater good, just as when, you know, decades before I'd served in the military. I didn't give that up when I switched over to StubHub. I was still given that I'm not here just to make a dollar or to stop a transaction. They wanted me to make a real world impact. And I was still able to do that. And maybe it's corny, but serve the greater good. Someone needs to go after these people. Just whacking that mold. I mean, it's just, it's one, it's going to get demoralizing and tiring and dejected. And that's never what I wanted. And I didn't have to do that there. Rob gave me full confidence and trust to go out and take down names. And uh, I know my team, which I had two investigators and a dotted line analyst helping me on that team. And I know we all Whenever we talk, talk about it at the golden age, no matter where we moved on from, I'll say that right now I'm doing, I've got a team put together that's on par with what I was doing back then. But that was, that was a golden age for what we were doing and how we were given the reins to go forth and, and do something impactful. 
So that's what I'm thankful for. And I, and I know that it, you know, at some level, somewhere, our investigation impacted the real world. 100% they did. Yeah, several times. And that has to be very fulfilling. And I think that a lot of people listening can very much relate to not just being in this industry for the dollar, right? I mean, some, some people could definitely make more doing, doing other things, but it's a sense of purpose and a sense of pride and the fact that you were able to carry it out all the way to the end and make a real world impact is just, it's amazing. And I think a lot of people listening to this are definitely thinking about that as well, because I do think that there should be a bigger calling. And even though it was the golden age for you guys, and I couldn't agree more, to your point that you made earlier, it doesn't mean that that can't be done again. It can be. It's just that it has to be for a company that really wants to do this and, and that wants to say, hey, we're not going to we're not going to be a conduit for funding these horrible real world crimes. And we want to invest in fighting back. And I think I'm hopeful that that will happen again. I do, too. Well, on that note, you guys, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your afternoon with me. I appreciate it so much. I know that my listeners will too. I'm sure you'll hear from several of them. I'll put links to your LinkedIn in the show notes. I'm going to include at least one of the links to some of the news stories. It's just really cool to see and, and fairly rare, but man, are those really good advertisements to fraudsters and they get all over the dark web too and telegram, et cetera. Like, don't mess with them because they'll actually prosecute. It's so rare that companies prosecute that they'll shout it from the rooftop. So thank you again for your time, for sharing your experiences and your memories and just being for just two awesome humans that I'm so grateful to know. Thank you. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.